I want us to think this morning about the birth of the church, the growth of the church, to some extent, the persecution of the church, although we can't get very much into that, and then the perseverance of the church, how God has sustained the church through all of these years. But before we get into any of that, I want to give a definition for what the church is. If somebody were to say to you today, what is the church? You might say, kind of like they were referring to on that video, well, the church is that big building on the corner of Fairmont and Red Bluff. No, that's not the church. That's the building that the church meets in. The Greek word from which we get our English word church is the word ekklesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ekklesia, and it means the called out ones. And so the church is made up of those of us who have been called out by God to faith in Jesus Christ. We've been called out from the world to follow Jesus in our daily lives. That's what the church is. The church is the people The church is not the buildings. Today, if we would have said, hey, we're going to have services on the baseball field. Well, if you would have wanted to be with the church, you would have had to be on the baseball field today, not in these buildings. Wherever the church is, uh, wherever the people are, that's where the church is. Now, it's interesting. The other night, I was doing my favorite thing to do about 11 o'clock at night, and that is not to just watch any one particular show, but my favorite thing to do is to flip through and watch about 15 seconds of as many shows as I possibly can. Does anybody else like to do that? And I was doing this the other night, a little bit of sports, a little bit of comedy, a little bit of news, a little bit of this, and I came to TBN, one of the Christian stations, and one of the pastors that I enjoy listening to, a man named Jensen Franklin, who pastors a church north of Atlanta in Georgia. Georgia. He was being interviewed that night, and he said something I found very interesting. He said that he had been on a conference call several days earlier with several pastors all across the nation. And he said as they were talking about the pandemic and everybody was kind of talking about how their church was doing in the after, in the midst, and even in the hopefully towards the tail end of the pandemic, he said there were two questions that all the pastors kept asking in different ways. Question number one was, will the church ever be the same after the pandemic? That was the first question. They talked about that. The second question was, if it's not the same, What will the church look like after the pandemic is completely over? And as he was just sharing that, he didn't have an answer. None of the other pastors seemed to have an answer. But he said something that gripped my heart. And when he said this, I said to myself, that's what I've been thinking ever since the pandemic began. Here's what he said. He said, you know, there are a lot of pastors and there are a lot of Christians who have said The church will never be what it was before the pandemic. Here we've been out of church for, uh, well, we're not out now, but for over 14 months we've been trying to have church during a pandemic. Much of that time we couldn't even have the services with people in the room. And he said during this time many people have gotten out of the habit of coming to church. There are some people who actually could be coming back, but they're out of the habit and they're not coming back. And he said, you know, while it is true that some people say that the church will never be what it was before the pandemic. He said, I look at it differently. And he said, I believe that the church after the pandemic can be greater than it was before the pandemic. And he said, what I'm praying for is the rebirth of the church. And when he said that, I thought, well, Jensen, I've never met you. I don't know you personally, but that's what I'm praying for. And that's what I've been feeling all along. Listen, friend, God 
would not allow the world to go through what we have been through for the last 14 months if his only goal was to get us back to where we were before. I mean, if he only got us back to where we were before, what was the purpose of the trial, the test, the problem? Anytime in your personal life, or in this case, in the church or in the world, we go through something difficult, God doesn't allow us to go through something difficult just so we can get back to where we were before. God allows us to go through something difficult so we can reach a level that we never had reached before. And so in answer to the question, will the church ever be normal again? Here's my answer to that. I hope not. I hope that we'll be beyond normal, greater than normal, and better than normal. And it sounded like that you agreed with what I just said right there. And I'm believing that. I'm believing that's what's going to happen. So if you'll open your Bibles today to Acts chapter 2, I'm talking about the rebirth of the church. And I'm using that term metaphorically, of course. But I want us to see from Acts chapter 2 the birth of the church. It's a fascinating, fascinating passage of Scripture. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, notice what the Bible says. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now let's just stop right there. Pentecost. That word literally means 50th. It is the 50th day after another Jewish feast. Now, we're not going to take time this morning to look at our Old Testament, but if we had unlimited time, we would go back to Leviticus chapter number 23, and we would read about seven different Old Testament feasts. I've always thought that would be an interesting series of sermons because as, as we study about these feasts, all of them have something to do with Jesus. For example, the first feast was the feast of Passover. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in verse 7 that Jesus is our Passover lamb. The second feast is called the Feast of First Fruits. That took place on the Sunday immediately following Passover. So if Passover was on a Friday, two days later would have been the Feast of First Fruits. And that's when the people would have brought to the priest in the temple the first fruits from their spring harvest. And the priest would have offered those sacrifices to God. Well, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 that Jesus is our first fruits. He is the first fruits of those who have died. Jesus is the first person to come back from the dead who would never die again. Now, Lazarus came back from the grave. The widow's son came back from the grave. Jesus brought other people back from the grave, but they all died again. But when Jesus came up out of that grave, he became our example, the first fruits, the first person to rise from the dead who would never die again. And so the first two feasts are clearly prophetic references to Jesus Christ. Now, Pentecost is the third feast, and it took place 50 days after the feast uh, of first fruits. And so that's the feast that they're celebrating here, the Pentecost. And it was a time where the people would come together and they would offer up their sacrifices to God and thank him for all the blessings that he had given to them. And so the people now are in Jerusalem to celebrate this particular feast. And something very interesting happens. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each other. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so here you have all these Christians together in Jerusalem. They're in the upper room. 
And Jesus has just ascended. He has just returned to heaven. In fact, if you go back to chapter number 1, and in verse 11, we, in, well, verses 9, 10, and 11, you read about Jesus going back to heaven. In verse number 12, 12, it says, Then they, that is the disciples and the others who had been on the Mount of Olives when Jesus went up to heaven, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. This is the same upper room where Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper, where they had celebrated the Passover together just a few nights earlier. Now they're back in that room, and it lists all these disciples. And in verse 14, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so all these followers of Jesus are back in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, and they're praying, and they're, and they're asking for God's blessings, and an amazing thing happens. All of a sudden, there's the sound of a mighty wind, and the wind just blows through that room where they are. And then there are these, they can see something. There are tongues that come to rest on these people. And then they begin to speak. And at this point, they're out with the other people because Jewish people had come from all over the world to celebrate Pentecost there in Jerusalem. And some of, they've come from all kinds of different countries and they speak all these different languages. And the miracle that took place is Peter and Andrew and James and John and the others, they began to speak in languages they had never learned before. So when it's talking about tongues here, this is not talking about some ecstatic utterance. This is not talking about something that nobody understands. They were speaking languages they had never learned. It would be the equivalent of me getting on a plane and flying to Japan, and I've never taken a lesson in Japanese, and as I get out there and I see all these people in the airport and they're all gathered around, I start speaking to them in Japanese. Now, that's the tongues it's talking about here. It is speaking in a language that the people had never heard. And so all these people from all these different places are hearing the gospel preached in their own language. And when they hear the gospel preached, they're thinking, what in the world is this? In fact, the crowd had quite a response when they heard what was happening here. And Peter began to preach, and he began to tell the people clearly about Jesus. Now, as we think about the birth of the church, and this is exactly what happened. He preached a sermon. Skip down, if you will, to about verse number 41 of Acts chapter 2. Then those who gladly received his word, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so he preached, and there was this phenomenal growth, and all these people are getting saved, and it's an amazing thing that happened. Now turn to chapter number 4, and you see that all the people are here getting saved, and then Peter and John begin to perform other miracles. They heal a man who had been lame for many, many years. And in chapter 4, as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. 
and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So now we've gone from 3,000 to 5,000. Peter and John are persecuted. They're, thro- they're put in prison. And yet the more they're persecuted, the more they're mistreated, the more the church grows. And that's why I believe that coming out of the pandemic, the church can and should be stronger than it's ever been because that is the history of the church. The greater the problem, the greater the growth. The greater the persecution, the greater the growth. Now, I want to say something about the persecution. When I say persecution, and we read, for example, all through the book of Acts and all through church history about the people of God being persecuted for their faith. In fact, if you'll go to chapter 5 and in verse number 40, We read about Peter and John. They've already been imprisoned, and now they're about to be beaten because they're giving a witness to Jesus Christ. And it said, when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they said to Peter and John, you're out there telling other people about Jesus. We don't believe in this man. And we don't want to hear his name preached anymore. And we're telling you, don't, don't be preaching in his name. And they beat them, and they mistreated them, and so on. And in verse 41, it says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so, after they were beaten, what did they do? They, they praised God. They said, God, we can't believe that you would count us worthy to be beaten and to suffer for our faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And let me say this. Peep, Christian people all around the world are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who live in America, let me say a couple of things. There may come a day, in fact, there, there, it probably is happening in many places where Christians are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, even now. I do believe as we come closer to the end and more people whose hatred for Jesus comes to the surface, I believe that will become a greater problem. But listen very carefully to me. For those of us living in America today, we better be very careful before we flippantly say, because of something that's happened in our culture, We're being persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ when, in fact, we may not be being persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ. People living in China, people living in North Korea, people living in communist countries, people whose lives are on the line for mentioning the name Jesus, friend, that is persecution. And I've heard several pastors during this pandemic say, hey, when y'all shut the churches down and didn't let us have services in the churches, we were being discriminated against. We were being persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ. And while I'm saying that the day may come when that happens. I do not believe that for the churches to have been shut down for 7 or 12 or 19 or however many weeks during the pandemic, you cannot equate that to the persecution that is taking place in China and North Korea and what Peter and John were going through. Listen to me. If the church was persecuted during those weeks we couldn't meet together, then you would have to say the NFL was persecuted. Major League Baseball was persecuted. College sports were persecuted. The NBA was persecuted against. Theaters were persecuted against. Restaurants were persecuted against. No, persecution, biblically speaking, is when those in authority say, you cannot speak in the name of Jesus. And I'm telling you around the world that's happening, and that may happen in America. And we have to ask ourselves this question. If the day should come, 
when those in authority, not in the name of a pandemic, not for the good of public health, but if they should say to those of us who are preaching the gospel, you can no longer preach that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, that is hate language, that is discriminatory, that is condescending to other faiths, here's the question, what will preachers do? Well, I'll say this, at that moment, if that is said, now we have persecution on our hands. And to equate that to what has happened to restaurants, theaters, and sports all across the nations and churches is not the same thing at all. And I pray to God that if that day should ever come, you will have boldness and I will have boldness and we will say with Peter and John, we ought to obey God rather than man and we cannot help but speak and tell people the truth and that is that salvation is found in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. That's how we would respond to persecution. But we have to be careful every time something happens in culture not to say what we're being persecuted against because we're crying wolf. The persecution is coming, and it's already across the world, and it may come here. And if it does and when it does, we have to remain strong, and we have to stay true to Christ but we cannot equate other things to true biblical persecution as those who have gone before us and those who live around us in other places in the world are going through even today. Now, when Jensen Franklin said that he's praying for the rebirth of the church, and I'm sitting there listening to that on television, I think, Jensen, that's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm believing for. Well, the reason I said I'm using that word, and he was too metaphorically, is that the church, strictly speaking, has already been born. And so there'll never be another day of Pentecost quite like the original day of Pentecost. In other words, just like there will never be another Calvary, Jesus is not going to die on the cross again. There will never be another Pentecost in the sense that the Holy Spirit comes down like he did here. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has already come down. And so when I'm talking about the church being reborn, I'm talking about a fresh filling of the people of God where we come to the place in our lives where we say Jesus Christ is the center of my life and my life revolves around him. And I wonder how many of us could honestly say that today. Jesus Christ is the center of my life and my life revolves around him. My life orbits around him. He's the center and everything else has to find its place around him. And so, it seems to me, if there could be a fresh filling, in that sense, if there could be the rebirth of the church, maybe if we followed some of the steps that they took when there was the original birth of the church, maybe we put ourselves in a position to experience those things. And so I want to just mention some things today. As I was thinking this past week about these early Christians and about what they were doing and what characteristics they had when the Holy Spirit fell on them, I think we can learn some things. First of all, they were united in purpose. Look back again in chapter number one. I want you to notice this. In chapter one and verse 14 again, they were united in purpose. And that is these all continued with one accord, that is with one mind, with one purpose. Chapter two, verse one, they were all with one accord in one place. Somebody, I heard my dad say it this years ago, he preached a sermon on Acts 2. And he said, These early disciples were together, together. They were together physically, but they were together spiritually. They were together, together. 
They were in one accord. They were of one mind. Now think about this. These people who had gathered had all kinds of differences. You had men who had been fishermen, one man who had been a tax collector, Simon the Zealot who had been a, a, a political activist. You had people from all different backgrounds. You had women in this room. You had people from all over different places. They were as different as night and day, as different as they could be. And yet, they had this in common. Jesus Christ was the center of their lives, and their lives revolved around him. Think about this. These people had left their jobs to follow Jesus. They had been cut off from their livelihood. Matthew walked away from a job as a CPA, as a tax collector. Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip, fishermen, walked away from that. Simon, from a political career. They quit everything. They, they left their homes. They left their extended families. They left their parents. They left their siblings. They, they left everything they had to follow Jesus Christ. And they had made a commitment. Not only do we trust in Jesus as our Savior, He is the center of our lives. And our lives orbit and revolve around him. And so they were together, together. They were of one accord. You know, it's possible to be together physically and not be together, together, and not be of one mind. The next time you turn the television on and you notice all the members of Congress together there in the Capitol building, I can assure you of this. Although that group is together physically in the same room, that group is not together. They're not together. The president says something, and this side stands, and this side sits. And this side applauds, and this side does They're not together. They're together in the same room, but they're not together. Now listen, as the people of God, we may not agree. We may have different backgrounds. We have different views on different issues. But the one thing we must be together on is that Jesus Christ is the center of our lives. And our lives revolve around him. And I want to say, if there's going to be a rebirth of the church, if the church is going to be greater and better and stronger than it's ever been, and we, and we are, I just have to say this. I don't sense that we're not. I sense that we are. But I'm still duty-bound to say this. Listen, we must make sure that we are united in what binds us instead of being separated by those things that we disagree on. Because coming together around Jesus and saying, he is the center, he is the main thing. As long as we're together on that, then we are together. And one of the things I'm thankful about First Baptist, that is and has always been the spirit of our church. Let's make it about Jesus. Let's, let's focus on him and let's focus on what we have in common in Christ instead of what may separate us on a thousand other issues. Unified in purpose. Number two, they were united in prayer. Look back in chapter one again. These all, in verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer. And so prayer, prayer is, is the thing that puts us in a position to receive a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God in our lives. And I wish I had more time today to talk about prayer, but I encourage you in your daily life to set aside time every day to pray. R.T. Kendall said for the 25 years that he pastored Westminster Chapel that he challenged every member in that congregation to pray for 30 minutes a day. And he said he challenges ministers, pastors, church leaders to pray for one hour a day. 
And he said, looking back on his years at Westminster, he doesn't know how many of the people in that church took him up on that, but many of them did. And so I'll just, in the spirit of, of, of what he said to that congregation in London, say that to our congregation here. I challenge everyone listening to this message today, beginning tomorrow, to pray for 30 minutes a day. For your family, for yourself, for our country. If, if our country's ever needed prayer, we need prayer. To pray for our country and to pray for our church, and to pray for what I'm talking about today, for a fresh filling, for the rebirth of the church, that Jesus Christ would become the center of all of our lives, united in prayer. And number three thing that they had, they were not only unified in purpose and united in prayer, they were under strong preaching of the Word of God. Notice, before all these people ever got saved, Peter stood up and he preached a strong sermon. Look, look back at it. This would be an interesting, if we had time today, to break down this sermon. But beginning in chapter 2 in verse 14, through the better part of that chapter, Peter began to preach, and he began to explain that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all Old Testament messianic prophecies. And he explained that what was happening on the day of Pentecost, in the coming of the Holy Spirit, God was pouring out his Spirit on all flesh as he had promised, and he gave an overview from Joel chapter 2, and then he went into Psalm chapter 16 and talked about how David had prophesied about the resurrection of Jesus. And he's preaching and saying everything that's been prophesied about the Messiah has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's how you know you've been in a strong biblical sermon. At the end of it or in the middle of it or it's somewhere in it, you are cut to the heart. And you say, this is God's word to me. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, in light of all you've said, what are we supposed to do? Then Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That is, be baptized, not so you can be forgiven, but because you already have been forgiven, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they were under strong biblical preaching. And in the midst of that, think about this. Unified in purpose, united in prayer, under strong biblical preaching, the Spirit fell down, they were convicted in their heart, they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, you better get saved. <laughs> Repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ. And they did, and thousands were saved. Now, in preparing for this message, I came across a couple of quotes that I thought were so good. Many of you who've been around for a while have heard about a preacher named Vance Havner. He was a famous evangelist who lived a long time ago. And he said this, and I thought it was so good. We are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Now, we all know that we shouldn't, for those of us who are saved, even though sometimes we do conform to the world, we know that we're not supposed to conform to the world. But as I read that quote, I thought about you, I thought, you know, as a Christian, who is active in my church, I think those of us who are Christians and who attend church regularly, we're more likely to be critical of the world than we are to conform to it, although sometimes we do conform. And I want to say this. Yes, there is a place for us, and it, it's always appropriate to speak truth, 
to call sin, sin. We should do that. That, is not, that, is not, that. that should always happen. But I think we have to be careful. When we are around other people who are unsaved, that we, ha- we can't just criticize them or criticize sin or criticize everything wrong that's going on in our country. There's a place for, for speaking the truth. But remember this, friend. Jesus was not a critic of sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Now, you remember that. In fact, the only people Jesus criticized was religious people who criticized sinners. And so we have to be careful that we don't, in the name of, well, I want everybody to know how bold I am. It's easy for a preacher to do this. easy for a preacher to say, I want everybody to know how bold I am. I just call it like I call it and call it like I see it. Well, call it like you call it and call it like you see it, but do it in love and do it in such a way that those who've never been saved will be drawn to Jesus Christ. And that's what Vance Havner was saying. We're not going to move this world by criticism of it. So we have to ask ourselves this question. What is my goal? To make a reputation for myself? I'm bold. I'm courageous. I call it like it is. Is that my goal? Well, we certainly should always speak truth, but speak truth in love. The goal should be every time I stand up here and preach the gospel, yes, I preach the truth, and no, I never hold back, but I do it in such a way so that those who've never been saved are not repelled by the gospel, but they're drawn to the gospel. And that's what Vance Havner was saying. Warren Wiersbe, who wrote this commentary, said, this is very interesting when I read this. The early church had none of the things we think are so essential for success today. Buildings, money, political influence, social status. Now listen to this. And yet the church won multitudes to Christ and saw many churches established throughout the Roman world. Why? Because the church had the power of the Holy Spirit energizing its ministry. They were a people, now listen to this, who were ignited by the Spirit of God. And I read that and I thought, God, that's what Jensen meant when he said, I'm praying for the rebirth of the church. That's what I've been feeling all along, that we could be ignited, that we could be reignited by the Spirit of God in our church. I was sharing with our staff the other day, and I wish I had time it took me about an hour to go over this list. Does anybody have an hour right now until 11.11? I don't think you do. But let me just say very briefly that I shared this with the staff the other day. My dad and I, of course, had talked about it. And, and he said, John, why don't you share that? And I, 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 sh- I was sharing with, with the staff what I've been saying today. Coming out of the pandemic, it can be better. It can be stronger. It can be more than it's ever been. And I gave this verse out of Proverbs 29, where there's no vision, the people perish. And I said to the staff, we don't just need to see things as they are right now. We need to see things as they can be when the Spirit falls in a fresh way. Vision is getting a mental picture from God and seeing that thing in your mind and in your heart before it opens. And so here is the vision. This is not all of the vision. This is just, I mentioned out five things to the staff that, that we want to see happen here in our church. I could mention 20 other things on, on top of this. Number one, to see the church lift up Jesus, build up believers, and reach out to others. Number two, to see the church healthy, Growing and happy. Sometimes churches talk more about growth than they do about health. 
If we focus on health, there will be growth. Healthy babies grow. Healthy bodies grow. If we focus on health, growth will naturally take place. So that's part of the vision, to see the church, to see you. Who is the church? It is the people. Let me ask you this question today. Are you spiritually healthy? Are you growing spiritually? Are you happy? That'd be a good question. If you want to know how you're doing during the pandemic, ask yourself this question. In the last 14 months, have I grown healthier, stronger, and happier in my life? Well, we should be able to say, yes, I have. Now, here's a more specific thing that'll be easier to measure. We want to see in the 915 service, won't happen next week or next month. This one will take a little while. But we want to see the choir law full at 915. Full. Every seat occupied. That's what we want to see at 915. Now, some of you out there are going to have to move from out there to up here in order for that to happen. And you say, John, I don't have a great singing voice. Let me say this as politically correctly as I can. With the exception of those who are already in the choir loft, that is not a prerequisite. How is that? You don't have to have a great singing voice. You just have to love God and love to sing. Number, number four, to see the worship center full at both morning services. My dad sent out a picture this week. You'll get it. I got it over the weekend. It's a picture of, of, of this room full, and we want to see this full. We, on Easter, we got a glimpse of what it has been, and we got a glimpse of what it can be. Now, here's a good one. To see 25 boys and 25 girls in each age group division from the nursery all the way up through college. 25 kindergarten kids, 25 second graders, male and female. So 50 total, 50 first graders, 50 second graders, 50 seventh graders, 50 tenth graders, 50 twelfth graders, 50 in the college and career, 50 all the way up through. Now, we didn't have anywhere near those numbers before the pandemic happened. And yet, that's what we're praying that we'll see happen. You say, well, John, it's not quite there yet. Well, let me give you a verse in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. Do not despise this small beginning. For the eyes of the Lord rejoice to see the work begin. You know what God's pleased with today? No, is this room as full as it was before? No. Is it as crowded as it was on Easter? Of course not. But what God looks at and says, you know what? It's not as big as it has been. It's not as big as it will be. But the eyes of the Lord rejoice to see the work began. And then one other verse. In also, this is in Zechariah also, chapter 4 and verse 6. How's it going to happen, John? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not by our personalities, not by our intelligence, not by our creativity, not by our own popularity. No, by the Spirit of God on our lives. Now, as I was finishing this sermon last night, and I've got to bring the train into the station, all right, and I'm about to do it. I wrote this for my concluding remarks. Let's make a fresh commitment today as the people of God in this place that we will be unified in our purpose that Jesus Christ is the center of our lives and that our lives revolve around him. If you agree, that's a noble cause. Would you say amen? amen. I think we are, but let's make a fresh commitment. And number two, beginning today, and as you think about praying 30 minutes a day starting tomorrow, let's pray like we've never prayed before for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God on our lives and on this church.